being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 49 imperial japan part 19 japanese national socialism and sogen omori let's talk about japanese national socialism Many people have observed that Japan wasn't fascist, not in the same way that Germany, Italy, and Romania were. They didn't have a specific party rise to power with some new ideology. Japan was much more in the traditional conservative and ultra-nationalist vein. That's not to say there weren't Japanese national socialists. We've already talked about a few. Tatiana Linkoeva wrote about the curious fact that national socialism did not take off in a bigger way in Japan. She said, The curious case in Japanese interwar national socialism is that despite the fact that the turbulent social and political shifts of the 1920s seemed like the most opportune time for national socialism, its adherents had never succeeded in organizing an independent political movement, neither on the left nor on the right. Unquote. I have a lot of respect for the work of Linkoeva, but I would argue that National Socialism didn't take off in Japan because Japanese heavy industry did not need to fund it. One of the early popularizers of National Socialism, as opposed to just ultranationalism, which was the stronger movement by far, was Motoyuki Takabatake, who argued that national socialism improved upon Marxism. Takabatake's main influence, however, was not economics at all, but Gustave Le Bon, a French sociologist who wrote a pretty famous book called The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, which came out in 1895. That book was beloved by the likes of Sorel, Mussolini and Hitler. Now, despite saying that his national socialism was superior to Marxism, Takabatake did not dwell on economics almost at all. He did not really focus on the means or methods by which his political vision should be accomplished either. No, instead he focused on basic values like national unity and patriotism. Takabatake's group found support among the Pan-Asianists, however, who found him very useful. A useful idiot, perhaps? Takabatake met Ikikita, who shared a similar vision, and it is not clear why they didn't collaborate more. It is possible that Takabatake was scared off by Kita's gangster associates and his extreme politics. Or it's possible that Takabatake was to be the safe public version of, you know, the same basic politics. To that end, though, Takabatake achieved some fame in winning the contract to translate Karl Marx's Das Kapital, capital, right, in 1919. So if you're wondering how good the first version of Capital was, to appear in the Japanese language, you can probably imagine. Side note here, I don't know if anyone's made the mistake of reading the manga uh, version of Capital, but it sucks. I legitimately don't know why I read it. <laughs> For some reason, they take the story of like a cheese-making family, and they use, you know, the switch from artisanal to like factory made cheese as a backdrop for conveying certain concepts in capital which that part of it isn't terrible but it is poorly written poorly drawn probably poorly translated it's also filled with a ton of bizarrely non-marxian concepts <laughs> like the manga basically argues that they shouldn't make cheese through factories because of some because of some nebulous thing about artisanal quality and the spirit of the cheesemaker or something. It is frankly bizarre. 
it's got this weird idealism injected into the story for what should be a strictly materialist reading, right? Like, it's basically not a Marxist text, which, if you DM me and say, Jimmy, what were you expecting from a manga about capital? What did you expect? Yes, I know, okay? Like, sometimes I just read things just to hate them. So, Takabate would frequently get invited by the Imperial Army and Navy to speak on socialism. He was the go-to socialism understander, I guess you could say. Side note again, the US Empire, in their great wisdom, decided to just cut out the middleman and recruit by recruiting their neocons directly from Trotskyist, from Trotskyist organizations, thereby saving time and effort. I'm joking. Kind of. Takabatake asked the Home Ministry for permission to establish a National Socialist Party in 1921. They refused. But they did approve his translation of Capital. To this day, this is what he's best known for, as his National Socialist group was too controversial for Japanese authorities. This is a good indication that the Japanese state simply did not need to pretend to be anti-capitalist in any sense whatsoever, because everything was so well in hand. Now, national socialists typically have one play, to mobilize people against a threat or two, usually an internal and an external threat. The external threats are easy, usually it's other countries, usually neighbors, or, you know, frequently the scary communist country. The internal threat, you know, obviously Nazi Germany picked the Jews for the most part. You know, sometimes also the the left, sometimes conflating the two. But for the Japanese situation, at least Takabatake, he picked the Korean Japanese population to be the scapegoat. Now we have an article that he wrote after the Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923, which we've mentioned in a bunch of episodes. This article is called Psychology of the Masses. In this article, he speculated that the pogroms against Koreans might have been justified, and he pointed out that the murderous pogrom behavior in society was normal. He argued that a basic feature of mass mentality was its irrational instinct, with two coexisting elements, patriotism and victim mentality. Takabatake argued that mob patriotism should be vindicated, cherished, and indulged. He welcomed this outburst of patriotic spirit. Now, this is interesting, right? Like, two elements of mass mentality, patriotism and victim mentality. Interesting. Now, other than being a bigot and a running dog, a major tell that Takabatake was in the bag for the powers that be was his position on the Soviet Union. Prior to the Japanese Communist Party being established in 1922, he was all for the Soviet Union. After the Japanese Communist Party formed, he was dramatically against the Soviet Union. Here's another great anecdote about Takabatake. When he heard about Mussolini's march on Rome and his appointment as Prime Minister, rather than finding inspiration or hope in that story, like Hitler did, for example, Takabatake flew into a rage and he repeatedly punched a wall with his fist until he broke his hand and caused it to bleed. Reportedly, he could not hold a pen for a month. <laughs> Just freaking the hell out. I suppose you could read into that story a clear sense of jealousy. <laughs> Takabatake also vehemently denied being a fascist, despite <laughs> advocating for a National Socialist Party, right? He said of Mussolini's clique, 
The Italian Fascist Party was a party of political opportunists and bullies whose power was based on their association with modern Italian finance and industrial capitalism. Unquote. Which, like, yeah, duh, that's literally why they were, why they got in power. Dumbass. <laughs> now here's where things get very interesting. After 1931, and specifically after the Manchurian Incident, several of the other Japanese National Socialists teamed up with Shumei Okawa. If you'll recall, he's the guy who slapped Tojo's bald head. Okawa, mind you, had been working for the South Manchuria Railway Company as head of their research institute. Okawa also taught at a private academy on the grounds of the Imperial Palace. What he was doing and who he was teaching, I think you can read into that. These National Socialists and Okawa established the Research Institute for Japanese Socialism. What is the Research Institute for Japanese Socialism? Well, its stated goal was to build a new Japan based on the principles of state socialism, with the goal of strengthening Japanese ethnic communal spirit. Its publications criticized free market economics, glorified Japanese imperialism, argued that international relations were simply a war between the races, and they wrote quite a bit about Anglo-American imperialism. These National Socialists absolutely loved the Soviet Five-Year Plan. They loved the concept of socialism in one country. Some even went as far as to identify as Orthodox Stalinists. Tragicomically, the Japanese National Socialists disparaged the Japanese Communist Party and called them Trotskyists, because they followed the common turn rather than following you know, Stalin attempting to build socialism in one country and, you know, applying that to Japan. Another interesting organization was the Showa Research Association. Now, this was very interesting. This was a brain trust for Prince Fumimaro Konoe. Yes, the prime minister. Yes, the boss of Nisho Inoue. Now, the Showa Research Institute attracted all kinds of intellectuals, including the economist Ryu Shintaro, the political scientist Royama Kamikichi, the philosopher Kiyoshi Miki, and the economist Kamikichi Takahashi. The Showa Research Institute relied heavily on Marxism for their analysis of society. You know, it's funny, sometimes I've seen, like, green well-intentioned but just inexperienced young leftists sometimes like talk amongst themselves asking in like hushed tones hey do you ever think that like the powers that be like the pentagon like in the boardroom like do you think think tanks do you think any of these any of the power elite ever read marx ever read marxist theory and then just, like, do the opposite? And, like, it's a good question. I'm not, like, ragging on anyone, right? But the answer is yes, absolutely. There is a ton of examples of this. The Showa Research Association is just one of many. Entirely related, many of the Showa Research Association were, in fact, former socialists and communists. Because, one, they're the people who knew the theory in the first place. And, two, when you repress with one hand, you typically, at least if you're smart, you give people the chance to sell out with the other hand. And the SRA, Showa Research Association, was one of several ways in which they could save face, I guess you could say, and, like, give someone an opportunity to do something other than be a socialist or, a, you know, a Marxist. Manchuko, of course, being one of the other pressure valves, I guess you could say. Another related association was the IRAA, the Imperial Rule Assistance Association, which Konoe also created in 1936. 
It was set up to provide an institutional backing for Konoe's vision of national political unity. Ideally, they were trying to, quote, mobilize the total energy of the state and enable all national subjects to act as one in assisting imperial rule in wartime Japan, unquote. It was explicitly modeled after the Nazi party. Its slogan was, 100 million of one mind. The IRAA was part of a larger movement, the New Order in East Asia. This was a pan-Asianist organization, which was attempting to foster cooperation between Japan, Manchukuo, and China against the Soviet Union. Conservatives in Japan criticized the IRAA and the New Order as being too communistic. There were consistent rumors about it being a base for the Comintern, which sort of strikes me as like John Birch Society paranoia, and it would sound plausible if you were not an insider, I would imagine. But Konoe held a press conference, I believe while he was Prime Minister, and he addressed the situation. He said, Beat it hard, it sounds strong. Beat it lightly, it sounds soft. At times it may sound Nazi, and at other times it may sound Marxist, but its true sound is rooted in Japan's Gokutai, in Japan's national polity. And of course, he's talking about the IRAA, right? Just arguing that it's fundamentally Japanese, by which you can read into it that it's fundamentally serving like the emperor system. Now, even though Takabatake literally sold his soul and spent all of his time agitating against the Soviets and the JCP, he would go to his grave, regarding himself as a true Marxist. He would tell that to anyone who would listen. And we can quote Linkoeva here. Takabatake's bid to lead a reformed socialist movement in Japan in the early 1920s had important consequences. His theory of National Socialism implied the elimination of all political competition, left, right, and center. The superclass elites dictatorship, instead. Total control of all institutions, including economic ones, and higher collective purposes. He split from the socialists, and his formulation of a nation-centric socialism divided and weakened the Japanese left, his public attacks on the Soviet Union and international communism discredited the spirit of internationalism and justified Japanese imperialism. His writings inspired and legitimized attacks by rightist gangs against his former fellow anarchists and socialists. His doubts about workers' political potential undermined the nascent, nascent labor movement, and his statism sanctioned the government's dictatorial politics. In his drive to overcome the tensions and contradictions of modern mass society and capitalist industrial development, without making Japan a communist state, Takabatake formulated political thought that offered at its core a totalitarian state model." Unquote. And what happened to the unions at this time? Some of the Yamakawa clique managed to hang on, and stay involved in various organizations, but the JCP was completely crushed. The unions in Japan were slowly squeezed to death, too. One of the biggest unions, Sodome, no, don't laugh, it is kind of funny, which is to say, the Japanese Federation of Labor had at one point upwards of half a million members. They carried out some pretty big strikes. In some ways, it was the unions of Japan that actually won universal male suffrage in 1925. Like we talked about, that's when the powers that be granted universal male suffrage but increased the repression, got the crackdown going. So initially, the Japanese Federation of, of Labor had been aligned with anarcho-syndicalist elements. We're talking like the 1910s into the 1920s. Then they had been infiltrated or like, you know, 
run by the JCP, though both the Union and the JCP tried to keep that fact quiet due to police repression. As the JCP was just repeatedly curb-stomped to death, the Japanese Federation of Labor was taken over by right-wing elements. All along the way, there were various splits. Due to this infiltration, they ultimately ended up collaborating with Japan's imperial wars. Which is a bad sign for your union, right? The Japanese Federation of Labor would be dissolved and replaced in the year 1940 by the Sampo, which was the government-sponsored National Workers' Organization. Not terribly unlike the Nazi unions in Germany. Let's switch gears here. Let's talk about Masao Maruyama, who was a political scientist in Japan. He studied Japan's particular type of fascism, which is not a term I prefer because it doesn't really fit. I mean, if we're talking about, like, Takabatake, like, the strict definition of, like, Japanese National Socialism, right? But, in this case, Maruyama's talking about, like, essentially, Imperial Japan. And he uses the term fascism. I would prefer maybe, like, ultra-nationalism or just, like, conservatism. You know, it, whatever. But, like, he calls it fascism, so, you know, we're talking about his theoretic theoretical framework here, which he laid out, and I will go through the three stages that he lists in fascism's development in Japan. First, the preparatory stage, which occurred between 1919 and 1931, which consisted of various fascist societies of civilians in the margins of Japanese politics. The second stage was the mature stage, from 1931 to 1936, which had fascism manifesting in acts of terrorism supported by the Japanese military, or, you know, aspects or cliques in the Japanese military. The third stage would be the consummation stage, from 1936 into 1945 when fascism was adopted by Japan's ruling elite. My words here, despite disagreeing somewhat with like some of the terminology, I think that this framework of different stages is fundamentally sound. Like, I like it. That's pretty good. He also identified three distinct types of political personalities who served to formulate not only the fascist period, but the entire political world of Imperial Japan. And I'll go through all three. First, there's the shrine, who represents authority. Second, the official, who represents power. Third, the outlaw, who represents violence. Maruyama said that the shrine had the highest rank and the outlaw had the lowest. But the shrine does less in general, the outlaw just does more. The force that holds aloft the shrine and wields the real power in society is the official, which can be either civilian or military. The official rules over the people who do not have power. The official's legitimacy descends from the shrine. Now, the official and the outlaw often conflict, but they tend to work together much more than people realize. Now, the outlaw encompassed Japan's civilian ultranationalist groups and also its Yakuza groups. The shrine could include religious, civic, and cultural figures, but was fundamentally mainly talking about, like, the emperor, the ultimate shrine, who gave his authority to the entire system. The civilian was civilian and military government, those that would carry out policies but did not have absolute authority. Now, when I first read this, I kind of thought it was dumb, but the more I think about it, the more I kind of like it. It's almost like tarot cards, but for statecraft. Like, this kind of makes me think of the three amigos, Kishi, Sasakawa, and Kodama, how they 
roughly might align with these three groups, these three political personalities, right? It sort of prompts me to reflect on how the United States is in some ways similar and in some ways different. Now, I would like to discuss Sogen Omori, who is not really important enough to talk about, or at least I hadn't planned on talking about him during the February 26th incident. Sogen Omori came up when we were talking about Zen Buddhism, right? I wouldn't blame you if you don't remember, <laughs> but there is so much more to this guy and I didn't really know where to put it, but I think it made the most sense at least putting him with the episode on Japanese National Socialism. He's too interesting to ignore. Now, in post-war Japan, Omori became a well-known Rinzai Zen master. His disciples called him the greatest Zen master of modern times. His followers say that his very life is worthy to be considered a masterpiece of Zen art. But if we back up and start at the beginning, and mind you, this isn't going to be like a four-episode thing, this is relatively truncated, but as a youth, Omori trained in Kendo, the Japanese sword martial art, right? He was reported to be exceptionally talented at it, and he would go on to train with some of the most distinguished kendo instructors. He also studied calligraphy under a famous instructor of calligraphy. I think together they would also found a school of calligraphy. So we see Omori essentially excelling at multiple things that he would, like, try, right? He appeared to be, by all accounts, a very talented person. He also excelled at Zen Buddhism. He got into the Rinzai tradition, right? In 1933, after struggling with a particularly difficult koan, Omori had an enlightenment experience, which he wrote about, and I quote, I finished Zazen and went to the toilet. I heard the sound of the urine hitting the back of the urinal. It splashed and sounded very loud to me. At that time, I thought, aha, and understood. I had a deep realization. Amorti wrote that he was at the center of absolute nothingness, and also at the center of the infinite circle. He said, and I quote, to be at the center of the infinite circle in this human form is to be Buddha himself, unquote. So, you know, in his mind, and according to his followers, he achieved enlightenment. In 1927, Omori joined the Imperial Flag Society, which was his first, but not last, association with right-wing ultranationalist organizations. It was dedicated to pushing an in, for an entirely emperor-centric society. He also helped found the League for Loyalty to the Emperor and the Restoration. He joined that in 1932. In 1932. Omori wasn't just interested in abstract ideas, however. He got involved in the Sacred Soldiers Institute of Night in the Sacred Soldiers Incident of 1933, which I don't think I've mentioned before. That was another coup d'etat attempt in order to bring about the Showa restoration. They attempted, to, they attempted to assassinate the entire government cabinet, the heads of both political parties, the superintendent general of the Tokyo police, and the heads of various saibatsu. In some ways, they seemed like maybe better organized than the Blood Oath Corps incident, but I believe they were caught before they could kill anyone, so it was way less famous. There were a number of ties between Omori and his clique of assassins and Nisho Inoue. Here's the really interesting part though. Omori was not there when the entire body of conspirators was arrested. You thinking what I'm thinking? 
Was he a police spy? Did Amori give them up? It's very hard not to think along those lines. I have no idea, though. It's also very funny to think about him achieving enlightenment the same year he gets involved with a plot to assassinate, like, <laughs> the entire government cabinet, right? So in 1934, Omori starts the Jikishin Dojo in Tokyo. It was associated with ultranationalists with very strong ties to the Imperial Way faction. One of the dojo's advisors was Ryusuke Toyama, who was Mitsuru Toyama's son. Enough of this, this person knows that person. Let's, let's give some color. Let's talk about their daily routine at this dojo. 6 a.m., they wake up, they clean themselves, they clean the dojo. Then they do 45 minutes of zazen. Then they do morning worship service consisting of Shinto prayers, particularly to the sun goddess Amaratsu. If you'll recall, Amaratsu is linked to the emperor, mythically speaking, because she was said to be the progenitor of the imperial family. In the dojo hall's altar room, they had a large tablet to the sun goddess. On the left side of the dojo hall altar room, they had photographs of Japan's greatest military heroes and right-wing leaders. On the right side, they had traditional flower arrangements and Japanese swords. They also had a huge scroll which read, Enemy Countries Surrender. Every afternoon, they would hold martial arts practice. Judo every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Kendo on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. On Thursday, they had study circles, and they would do calligraphy on Sunday afternoon. Every month, they would hold a five-day period of intensive Zen meditation. The dojo ran a right-wing newspaper. It was so right-wing that the police would frequently censor it. And if you're listening to this series, you know how far and how extreme that would have to be to warrant censorship. Like, we're talking about them publishing actionable threats, essentially. So when the February 26th incident occurred, it later came out that although it was an attempted coup d'etat carried out by Imperial Army officers, it was actually planned by five men, three of whom were civilians. All three of the civilians were members of the Jikishin Dojo. They were literally planning this at the dojo. It is not at all clear what Sogin Omori's role was in the February 26th incident, but he would be arrested shortly after the coup failed. They held him for two months and then released him without charges. Now, in response to the February 26th incident, they issued martial law, right? which meant stricter than normal censorship, yeah. stricter than normal censorship and strong controls on the press. This meant that the ultranationalists could not explain themselves at the time. So Omori and his dojo attempted to get around these restrictions by printing mimeographed handbills and trying to distribute them without being arrested, right? They hit upon a novel way of spreading this agitprop. They would ride trains and place the handbills in toilet compartments of trains. Kind of weirdly like Omori experiencing enlightenment while pissing, right? So Omori was eventually rearrested and sent to prison. He went for like a year, I think. Reportedly, he loved prison. And he wrote, a solitary cell in a prison is a great convenience. Everything can be done in one room. The toilet is there, you can eat there, you can even study there. While I was there, I didn't think I should read all the time, so during the day I read books, and at night I did zazen. Now, maybe this is just my pattern recognition going a little nuts here, but you notice that, like, Omori seems to have a recurring interest in toilets. The fascist mindset, right? In 1940, Omori was pardoned 
and then he formed the Youth League for the Construction of Imperial Rule Assistance Structure. He also formed the Japanese Youth Council, and he took an administrative position at the Imperial Rule Assistance Manhood Group. The last group was associated with the IRAA, the organization we've been talking about, the one that was started by Fumimaro Konoe. In the mid-1940s, Omori got in with Konoe, and, you know, into the war, Omori served as a kendo instructor. Upon Japan's surrender, you know, and subsequent spiritual crisis, it provoked Omori to enter the Rinzai priesthood. He received a certificate attesting to his full enlightenment. He also became a civil magistrate in Tokyo. He also wrote books. He would become associated with D.T. Suzuki. Suzuki thought so highly of Omori that he recommended Omori as a Zen teacher for the Crown Prince Akihito. In 1961, Omori became director for the post-war Black Dragon Society, which was renamed the Black Dragon Club. Omori eventually became a professor in 1970. He would teach a course called The Practice of Zen. Now, Brian Dyson Victoria speculates that Omori was given this position because the Hanazono University was a base for the Japanese Red Army, and they were facing constant student protests. The theory that Victoria advances is that Omori was appointed there in order to push the school to the right. Omori couldn't do that alone, of course, so he reached out to the martial arts club. This is interesting. Martial arts students in Japan regard themselves as the spirit of Japan. They are mostly right-wing. Omori and the martial arts club began to intimidate left-wing students, and this reportedly cut down on the university protests. In the 1970s, Omori started traveling to the West, especially Hawaii. He established that dojo in Honolulu, which I mentioned, you know, in prior episodes. Omori would die in 1994. Just, I think you can see in miniature a lot of the themes we've been talking about this entire time. By the way, I learned a couple more factoids about Mitsuru Toyama and the Dark Ocean Society that I would like to include, even though we've talked about both in past episodes. Yet again, I guess you could say this episode is a nice place to revisit a few things. So, first, this is great. I found a description of Mitsuru Toyama as written by a Nazi propagandist writing for the Volkischer Beobachter. And I quote, Toyama is almost 90 years old. He holds no public office. He even has no occupation. He is neither politician, scholar, nor speaker. And yet there is no man of decisive importance in Japan who does not visit Toyama to seek his advice prior to making major decisions. Toyama is the living conscience of Japan. In his long life, Toyama has experienced the unique development of his nation out of the medieval shadow into a modern empire. In his experience, the old ties itself to the new, the traditional to the present. This man who represents the old Japan like no other is simultaneously the most modern of Japanese. For the past 40 to 50 years, Toyama has fought to establish Japan's dominant position in East Asia. This has made him the protecting spirit of Japanese politics and endowed him with a mysterious with a mysterious force that he exercises without office or power over his people and which endows his personality with a mythical splendor while still alive. Every morning, summer or winter, Toyama, who is almost 90, walks to the Meiji shrine walks to the Meiji Shrine. An hour away, whether in rain or snow, without a hat or a coat, 
He sits on the stone tiles in front of the holy shrine and engages in a lengthy conversation with the great Emperor Meiji's soul. Upon returning home, visitors from all walks of life await him, even visitors from throughout the world, to whom he, and this is his single task, announces his views. Yet his views always express the essence of Japanese politics. They are a reflection of the Japanese race soul. Here is a wonderful life already fulfilled in earthly existence and transfigured. Unquote. Like, can you imagine writing such a blowjob of an article? Like, good God. <laughs> One further note, which I thought paired rather nicely with that Nazi article. As I was researching just these networks in general, I found out that the Dark Ocean Society not only ran a large network of brothels across China, I mean, we sort of talked about that, and eventually over Southeast Asia also, but get this, they ran a brothel training school to provide their prostitutes with the training and necessary skills to extract information from their clients. I thought that was particularly interesting in light of my conversation with Recluse about British honey trap operations that, you know, eventually link back into the Epstein network. If that sounds interesting to you, check that out on the Patreon. But, think about it. Prostitute spies. Brothel training schools. Very bleak. A reflection of the Japanese race soul indeed. Let's talk about conclusions here. So we see how the Japanese did not really need National Socialism the way Germany did. It's almost like Japan is almost as if Bismarck's Germany didn't falter and just kept on trucking. We talked about Takabatake, who was as weird as any of your Nazis or your Italian fascists. We discussed how there were several think tanks, think tanks and organizations that pretty much existed to subvert Marxism's analysis and power and then reintegrate that back into the body politic. Like, we answered the college freshman question, like, hey man, you ever think that, like, company executives ever, like, read Marx? And the answer, of course, is yes, absolutely they do. There's no reason you can't take the same fundamental understanding of society and just choose to make evil decisions. And like, no, like, that's the thing. It's not like the, it's not like corporate overlords don't already essentially have a understanding of the labor theory of value. They just know not to call it that, right? Conversely, a lot of the same people have in fact a much more sophisticated understanding of propaganda, soft and hard power, and how the economic base and superstructure work than your average, say, I don't know, Brooklyn podcaster. Right? Now we discussed Maruyama's theory of the development of fascism. I think it does reflect the eras where National Socialism, such as it is, was being pushed by these ultra-nationalists and then digested by the military, then enshrined by the ruling elite, especially the emperor, right? And while I don't love to constantly compare everything to modern-day America, sometimes I worry that we're in the second stage, right? Where fascism manifests through acts of terrorism increasingly supported by the U.S. military. I mean, I think that that might be an overly simplistic model, but it seems to be, if it's in any of those stages, that's where I would imagine we're probably at. And we talked about Sogen Omori, whose life fully illustrates some of the spooky ties to Japanese martial arts specifically, you know, more than others. It's interesting, right? Because Nisho Inoue practiced Kendo, Omori practiced Kendo, and other martial arts, Judo, Karate. Very interesting stuff. Finally, you know, I talked about a few updates about the Dark Ocean Society running brothel training schools. 
which is bleak and horrific sounding. Much of Japan doesn't want to discuss comfort women, right? But imagine what kind of horrors occurred at the brothel training schools, which would almost by definition include underage girls. Very, very black-billed. Four sources today. I used, first and foremost, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism by Tatiana Linkoeva. Also used many of Brian Dyson Victoria's books, also Kodama's autobiography, also Kishi's Sugumo Prison Diary, also a variety of articles, and mind you, Japan has massive scholarship on the Japanese left, very neglected in English language studies. I'm acknowledging that I wasn't able to use it, of course, because I don't speak Japanese. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. Check out my Patreon, where you can get additional episodes for just $5 a month. Now I need to be on my way to Baku. See you next week, and God bless. Sorry, you